So Ukrainians are famously hospitable. And for me, I was quite struck when I experienced very similar feeling of hospitality from Singaporeans here. So although Singaporeans, I mean, Singaporeans are generally like they're used to this cultural diversity, but especially you feel it when you go, for example, to your friend's house for Chinese New Year. Um, when you know the the they greet you, his parents, his whole family greets you, gives you oranges, gives you the hunk pows, which is little envelopes of some money inside that is given for Lunar New Year here, and and they they give you their family dishes, and it's it's so nice and so hospitable and um, so amazing, and for me it really gave me like a feeling of home, rather that I felt back in Ukraine. This podcast shows that Ukraine is not what foreigners see on television. In reality, Ukrainian people are much better, much more interesting and friendly than other people expect. This podcast is about the experiences, work, and personalities of Ukrainian people with a focus on the capital Kiev so that foreigners discover the positive truth about Ukraine. Hear the voices of Ukrainians, visit the country, and invest in the economy, creating more opportunities for the younger Ukrainian generations to stay and build their country. Hello, my name is Aziz, and I have a deep connection with Ukraine. My grandfather volunteered in 1987 to help liquidate the Chernobyl chemical radiation because he believed in humanity. He was a real hero for me, and even though He struggled with cancer after that for the rest of his life. He always told me many great things about Ukraine and its people. Then, from 2018 to 2019, for two years, I began working with UNICEF in Ukraine to help build orphanages for the children who lost their families in the war. I couldn't return to Ukraine in 2020 because of COVID-19, so this project is my volunteer work to help Ukraine. And thank you all so much for the support. This podcast now is ranked number one on Apple Podcasts about Ukraine. Top 100 travel podcasts in France, in Switzerland, and in Ireland. Top 60 travel podcasts in the United Kingdom and in Norway. Top 50 in Sweden, in Canada, in Italy, in Spain, and in Jamaica. Top 25 travel podcasts on Apple Russia. Top 20 on Apple Poland, Belarus, and in the Netherlands, and top 10 in Finland, in Romania, in Cyprus, in Thailand, and in South Korea. So please keep supporting as we will reach together 100 interviews and many more. And follow the new Instagram about this project, aziz.future. My guest today is Nikita Taratorin, a sophomore at Yale and U.S. College, as well as the Vice President for Business Division of the Yale and U.S. Global China Division. Born and raised in Kiev, upon finishing the concurrent high school program, he enrolled in Yale and U.S. College in Singapore to study global affairs with immersive liberal arts and sciences experience. He plans to pursue public policy in the future to make Ukraine a better place. Now he is building his professional career and recently 
He got actively involved in the startup scene in Singapore, which taught him a lot about the dynamics and trends of the Southeast Asia region. Nikita, how are you today? Thank you. I'm very good. <laughs> I'm happy, excited, have been waiting for this for weeks and weeks, actually. We, this is one of the first like interviews that was scheduled, but you scheduled it so far in the future, and therefore the future is now. <laughs> and, <laughs> and to begin with one of my most favorite new questions, which is this. These days, these weeks, these months, what do you seem to be thinking about more and more? Something that's going on on your mind, either something you're trying to figure out or something that you're trying to improve or just something that is important that stays on your mind lately? Oh, wow. That's quite a, that's quite a deep question. Um, I guess for me, it's, I'm increasingly thinking more about uh, my place in the world and uh, who I sh- want to become and who I see myself in the future. Uh, so before uh, before I left Ukraine, I uh, wanted to make my country better. And after all that instability that happened from 2014 onwards, uh, I want I really wanted to come back to Ukraine and participate in politics and really build rigid institutions that would not only help the state to become very effective in fulfilling its goals, but also to help uh, Ukrainians living in Ukraine. Uh, but now I'm, I guess I'm thinking more globally as now I'm discovering uh, more issues in the world and I'm also learning more about the world itself. And um, I'm really, really considering right now to focus on more global issues with Ukraine in mind. Thank you. So if I hear you correctly, when you were in Ukraine, you, after 2014, you are thinking about being involved in politics, creating platforms so that Ukraine becomes better. But as you explored more and more of the world, you're thinking more about focusing on global issues and impacting the world at large. And therefore, this was part of your thinking about your place in the world. Is this correct? Precisely. Um, I mean, there are so many challenges, especially the new ones that we as humans face uh, on almost on a daily basis. I mean, on top of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have climate change. We have uh, challenges that arise from more technologies becoming increasingly important in our lives and whether they're reliable or not. Um, you know, scientific progress also opens up a lot of ethical questions. So for me, all of these issues are very uh, deep and hard because I'm a big believer in progress, honestly. Brilliant. You mentioned you're a believer in progress. What does progress mean for you? Because it's a concept and therefore each person will have their own descriptive details to that label if you had like three characteristics or three things that would describe to you your own personal meaning that you put on the label progress what would this be that's a that's an interesting question because i think it really comes down to how we conceive of modernity and how we conceive of uh the human historiography and how we progressed as humanity in general and i guess for me the progress can be classified in, it can be basically summed up in three words. It's uh, 
discourse, I guess, development and growth. And then final, the final term is reflection, as uh, we always have to look back on perhaps mistakes that we have done in the past or uh, perhaps past discourses and I would say conflicts that you might have had over our pro progress, essentially. Great. So if I understood correctly, and I'm going to describe it in a different way, so please correct me if I'm wrong. So this course is in many ways acting in the world and receiving feedback. And then from there, you reflect on it, and therefore you extract lessons and learnings, and that allows you to develop and to grow. Is this correct, or would you Precisely. modify or describe it? I think I think exactly that. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, anyone anyone can uh, perceive progress in different ways. Economists look at it in terms of growth in GDP. Uh, I don't know. Uh, more people that are in, uh, people that are more in tech are look more look at it more as introduction of new technologies and uh, you know new features perhaps in the in, in the products that they're developing. But so because we cannot really look at progress from from one point of view, I guess it's just important to focus on how humans see progress in general and how they try to conceptualize it in their heads. And I guess that's the way to understand it as a whole. Great. And you spoke about perspectives. Are you someone that through reflection, you always try to look at every problem, every issue from different perspectives in order to extract the learnings that will uh, be the discourse or inner discourse or even through conversations with people in order to learn and develop? Or is this something that you had come to realize as important more recently? Honest, um, knowing myself, I know that I w uh, before I wasn't too embracing of um, embracing different perspectives and different points of view. I was quite assertive on what I was thinking and why I was thinking that. But now, as I learn more about different cultures, different opinions, different histories, uh, and I guess different perspectives uh, that come of that, I, I believe that it is important to consider these. So I think it is one of my personal goals to whenever, regardless of um, an issue or conflict or challenge that I'm trying to solve or that I'm trying to face, um, I would ha uh, it's the, the main purpose for me is to actually focus on considering multiple perspectives and multiple approaches to solving it. So I guess that's kind of a life philosophy in a way and trying to make yourself a better person and think about everyone and everything. Which is maturity. And there are people who define wisdom as the ability to look at something from different perspectives. So in many ways, you're a philosopher because the real meaning of that word is a lover of wisdom and wisdom is having multiple perspectives and therefore you're seeking philosophy or wisdom, which is really interesting to think about. And to understand you more as a person, when do you want to relax? When you want to reflect or to unwind, what tend to be there in Singapore right now? your favorite activities or things to do just to get your mind off of problems and issues and activity and productivity and just to feel relaxed and alive and good? Oh, that's, an, uh, that's an interesting question because it also um, asks me to clarify specifically within Singapore. So I guess I will accommodate for that. Uh, I think, I mean, for me, it's mostly three things. It, specifically within the Singaporean context, it's I guess it's exploration. So 
although I have lived here for two years already, um, I still feel like a foreigner in many cases. And uh, for me, it's just very in- insightful and very I'd say, inspiring to explore different cultures and different cuisines that can be found in Singapore and because as, as, as a regional hub. So for me, that's one of the things that actually uh, switches my brain into thinking about other things and being more thinking more globally, thinking about more global and more important issues and uh, mostly thinking about myself in the world as well. I guess other, otherwise, my two other activities is I'm an avid tennis player. I, it's my favorite sport and I uh, try to spend as much time as possible in it. And then whenever it's raining outside, I guess I love to read and I try to get as much reading as possible uh, every day. Thank you. And if you had to choose for the rest of your life to only do one thing, either tennis and you can play perfectly, have no rain, everything's going to be smoothly, but you cannot read and you cannot explore new cuisines or every day without getting any fat, you can explore all the cuisines of the world as much as you wish and always be exploring new things and being surprised or You're reading, learning, and developing in that way, but you cannot explore cuisine or play tennis. Which one would be the primary choice, although all are important? This is such an such a horrible question to ask, to be honest. I think it's a, such a hard question to ask because uh, I, I mean, currently I cannot imagine my life without any of these things. So for me to take one of this is already a big call. But uh, uh, I guess for me it's. Um, I would rather read for the rest of my life. Uh, simple, uh, simple, simply because there are. I know for I know for sure that there are more books in the world uh, than we are possibly we are actually physically able to read. And going back to perspectives, like you know, as there are as many books as there are perspectives in the world. So uh, if if I am uh, keeping up with my narrative of you know trying to embrace as many perspectives as possible and learn more about the world reading would be my number one choice and i mean even jokes aside uh i guess it's one of my favorite activities just because you know it kind of does both in terms of intellectually stimulates me and makes me learn something new but at the same time allows me to relax and allows me to rest and i think that's a wonderful wonderful two features to have uh yeah <laughs> i like that so we're gonna focus on books for a while And to begin, I'm really curious about something because you mentioned earlier that the reflection is one of the three things that you like a lot, which is discourse, uh, development and growth, and the reflection. Well, when you read, are you more of a speed reader or do you follow what someone I highly respect and who is great and he wrote a book in 1940, his name is Mortimer Adler, How to Read a Book, where he says, <laughs> actually, you should choose a great book and then spend three months just going page by page and having a discourse and an argument with the author and writing down and journaling and thinking about everything and even creating a structure for the book and looking at it from all the perspectives to extract all the wisdom. Because according to him, there are many well-read idiots in the world <laughs> therefore to read less to read less uh, but extract more is where the value is rather than to read more but then you're 
glance and over it so rapidly that you remember in words, but there is no absorption of knowledge. Well, which perspective do you agree with? And since I use the word perspective, you'll probably say both because that's uh, perspective ink. But what, what do you think? Uh, and that way, it really depends on what I'm reading. From one side, uh, when I'm trying to complete my readings for coursework, uh, for example, uh, then I have no time to actually go into every single page and close read because uh, it's already taking me over, uh, I would say, seven hours a day just to like keep up with the coursework. So uh, when it comes to actually delivering, uh, when it comes to academic deliverables, like I have to speed read, and especially when it comes to like reading nonfiction. Uh, scientific studies, sociological studies, there I have to unfortunately skim through and uh, completely disregard the craft of the author, I would say. But uh, when it comes to uh, more leisure reading, and especially when it comes to reading philosophy, uh, for example, Hobbes is one of my favorites, uh, then in that case, I prefer to close read actually, because I really find enjoyment and pleasure in actually deconstructing the logical arguments the social theorists and social uh, philosophers have uh, have and how they actually make their argument point and how they view the world in general. So for me, it's uh, I, yeah, I guess it depends on what specifically I'm reading <laughs> and how much time I have to do it. I like that. You said how they view the world, which is a different way to say perspective, which means even when you're reading philosophers, you're more trying to look at their perspective than anything but let's i have so many I didn't questions even realize, one, I, didn't even, I didn't even realize i'm doing that <laughs> yeah. it's great you said hobbes well if you can share one or two ideas of his that really touch you are meaningful to you that you agree with and you believe should be shared more widely which ones could these be i mean the main idea that i think if you ask anyone this question, the main idea that Hobbes would try to portray is, again, this notion of social contract and the fact that there would be entropy under without uh, entropy without uh, some common understanding that there must be either a state or just an entity, whether it can be embraced, whether it can be impersonified by some moral rules or something that can actually make uh, um, society cohesive and work well together and that greatly resonates with my um, view of Ukraine right now as you know I'm a big I'm, I'm a big patriot of my country I really miss home and I really I, I still I still really want to make it better and uh, when I come back uh, but the I think the main issue that I see is the break of the social contract that Hobbes defined in, in his works because um, the sovereign who we see as a Ukrainian state might not always deliver what they want uh, in the past in the past thirty years of independence, and that caused less cohesion, more um, turbulence, and more instability within the society itself, which led to which arguably led to the consequences um, that we see today. So for me, like I really think that trying to address the actual core premise of the society is that there must be a social contract where everybody uh, are willing to give up certain actions and certain, certain. I mean, he uh, Hobbes said freedoms, but not really freedoms, but more like ability to do something in, 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 um, in return for, I would say, 
similar benefits and respects from other citizens. I think that uh, I really see Ukrainian society within that prism that Hobbes has described. So I think he really impacted the way I approach uh, the topic of statecraft and and, and many of my thought experiments and discussions with my uh, peers. And um, yeah, and I think if I come, if I ever come uh, to be a leader or social influencer in Ukraine, I would try to address that idea of social contract and necessity for both parts to keep to their promises as the core and central and integral part of the society that we are developing. Thank you. So if I might say this in other words, and if I understood you correctly, because you use things like statecraft and entropy, etc., and I'm not sure (laughs) everyone will find it easy to understand, but simply is this. There are a group of people or a society, and if everyone tried to do what they want, then basically everyone will be harming each other and they'll be like bullying everywhere. And therefore, they organize some kind of leadership or state in this case. And the contract between them is the state has a monopoly on uh, legal violence and the people, they don't hurt each other and they don't do what they want. But I mean, they do things that will be beneficial to themselves and to society. And the state controls this and oversees this, and everyone can live in harmony by following the golden rule of uh, doing to others what they wish done to themselves, and therefore the world will be a better place. But if the state becomes corrupt and they just use violence to take money out of people (laughs) or give favors to some people and not others, or if they don't really have rule of law, then people can just become a mini mafia and do whatever they want. And that's, you called it entropy or chaos. And therefore, in many ways, that that this idea informs the way you view the world a lot and that left to their own devices, everyone will try to take more than their fair share. And therefore, there needs to be oversight in order for fairness and justice to exist to exist within a society. Is this correct? Uh, well, almost. I mean, I, I just believe that this, the idea of social contract can apply in multiple situations. So not only between uh, person and the state, but also person and person, for example, or community and community. So I see it as, I, I rather see it in a much wider context. And regarding the authority, so one of the biggest criticisms of Hobbes that I would provide is that Hobbes was a strict and, very firm advocate of having a very authoritarian and I would say totalitarian Leviathan with almost infinite power who uh, which would be able to enforce the notion of social contract but I think especially within the context of Ukraine it is, it is very it is very incorrect uh, to assume that that would work uh, and um, I'm I would consider myself to be quite liberal in the way of like you know embracing more democratic values so I, I I guess I'm tr- what I'm trying to say is that I'm trying to extrapolate some of Hobbesian some of the Hobbesian I- general ideas into more of a Ukrainian context perspective. Thank you. And to return more to a personal level to you <laughs> when it comes to reading, since you love reading very much. Well, what is your most favorite part about reading a great book? 
is it discovering such a book exists and being excited about what will be in it and discovering and exploring, which you mentioned exploration is a value for you? Or is it actually reading it and reflecting on it and just being there, working on the ideas and having your own perspective and learning about the perspective of the the author? Hmm. Or is it the discourse, since you mentioned even with Hobbes, you argue with your friends about it. So all these three things always keep repeating in your worldview. But which one, when it comes to reading a great book, is it the before when you learn about it and get excited about the discovery and the exploration? Or is it the reflection and learning? Or is it the discourse with people after you have absorbed the book? I would... Um... I would say both, and see how I see how I frame it in my head. So I I approach it in a in a quite Confucian way, in a sense. Uh, we have stu- we have studied in class about uh, Confucian philosophy, and one of the philosophers there, Mengzi or Mencius, he basically mentioned about cultivation of one's own sprouts of virtue. That's how he framed it. And to in, to translate into more human terms, uh, it's more like culti- I see it more like cultivation of myself. And I believe that every time I do something that I believe makes me a better person, I ultimately become a better person who is not only able to learn something more and to explore like like the variant A, but also to have to share this knowledge with others and to actually perhaps contribute to the creation of new knowledge and new opinions with, while talking to other people. So I rather see it as both in a way that every time I see I read a book, uh, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, I know that I get something from it personally, and I know that by do by reading something and by absorbing the information from the read, I become a better and confuciously more virtuous <laughs> uh, person, uh, person myself. And I, uh, I think I just see, I just see reading within the prism of self cultivation in a way. Brilliant! It reminds me of something I read about the library at the University of Chicago that it's written there, this is not um, a store of knowledge, but this is a store for ideas that need to cause you reflection and therefore to come up with your own knowledge. And therefore, that's what you mentioned, I guess, when you spoke about the philosopher saying that it's about cultivating your own sprouts of (laughs) ideas, etc. And then Okay, another turn, and let's go to tennis. And to say in another way, what lessons from tennis have informed your life and have become like drivers of the way you operate and view the world that you found valuable and you wouldn't have learned without the experience playing tennis? Mm, That's actually a very good question. So uh, I think all the tennis players out there would probably realize that serving is the most technical and it's the most challenging part of the game i mean not only is the most important uh important uh hit that you have but also uh it is hardest to do essentially especially the overhead one so for me i always struggled with the serve because i by nature i'm a quite an anxious person who is going everywhere every, uh, every time you know like i'm a very hustling person you know i know the rest but for serve, you really, really need to concentrate, calm down, aim, you know, re- rethink how you will be doing the serve in your head, you know, reprocess it. And that takes a lot of, I would say, um, so 
mindful activity. So every time now I learned that every time before I serve, I try to have this little mindfulness session, you know, for, for 10 seconds just to, you know, concentrate on the game, concentrate on the serve, you know, uh, all the previous balls that I have possibly lost, like are, you know, like they, they, they mean nothing because I'm about to serve right now again. And for me, I, that's very applicable right now as even though, um, you know, I'm trying to combine right now academics and an internship and uh, extracurricular activities and um, trying to do a bit of research about uh, Ukraine as well right now. And combining all of this is not easy and it can be overwhelming sometimes. But what really helps me is, again, embracing this little mindful activity of just calming down and trying to look at the essence of things. And that really helps me to often get through the day. So tennis taught you the necessity for meditation. <laughs> is this correct? Meditation and just calming, calming down your thought, you know, just, you know, taking a, taking a short breath and just uh, concentrating on the essential things uh, before you actually go into them. And I think that's really helpful, whether you're serving or whether you're about to start an essay. Thank you. Concentrating on the essential things, or some people will say the fundamentals. Well, when you think about your day and the way you started and the middle and the end, especially you're someone very productive, I assume, otherwise you wouldn't even make it to where you are. How do you approach your day and the, your schedule in a way where you allow or schedule in these fundamentals and a way for you to focus on the essentials and remember to take a breath so that you're not being anxious and just doing things like that come naturally rather than calming down so that you allow yourself to focus on what needs to be done i think there's uh i mean i think it's a necessity to do i would rather i i don't think personally i'm productive without just taking a break every half an hour and just you know you know phasing out and thinking about some some happy things or just thinking about nothing or listening to a one song or one jazz song for example just because yeah, I guess uh, when it comes to having a very tight schedule, as many as many of the listeners here might also be familiar with, like the the overwhelming nature of which might actually uh, think that you lost control over it. So every time, I guess a good sign for me is every time I feel like I'm losing control over my day, or my day is not going too well, or maybe oh my god, I'm I'm running late to this meeting, and then. Um, you know, I'm, I have this deadline tonight or something, and it seems it really seems like I'm losing it. I think it's I think it is a it is the prime indication of when you should take a two minute two minute pause and just you know just calm down, have a little breather, and you know um, just again focus on why you're doing these things and what your general goals for the day and whether maybe things that you might be screwing up this day uh, are important in the grand scheme. So. I guess that's the way I support. I I just see life. If the if the day is becoming too intense or too uncontrollable, I just it's already a sign for me that uh, I should do it regardless of what I'm doing right now. That's actually a great life strategy, and we can even speak much more about that. And we can. But now I want to speak about the cuisine and the exploration of the cuisine. And some people argue that Kiev is a culinary capital. And it's the cuisine is absolutely brilliant there. While you are in Singapore and it's a melting pot of some magnificent uh, kitchens and cuisines, how did you before explore 
um, cuisines in Kiev? Was that something you like to do? And if so, oh, maybe definitely. you can recommend some places. You can recommend some restaurants that you liked, as well as what could be a surprising thing that you discovered you liked about the Asian cuisine when you went to Singapore that you didn't know before, maybe a specific dish, a specific meal, and maybe a story about that will um, make the listeners get hungry and their mouths water, but why not, about food in <laughs> Singapore? Uh, okay, so I guess to start, um, I'm a big foodie. So even if you look at my photos, you know, I'm always a bit full because I love a good snack. And <laughs> I think it's, it always, it always makes me happy to have like a nice uh, meal or something. Um, so as a big lover of Ukrainian food specifically, I uh, honestly love Kiev for its restaurants scene. Uh, but actually, uh, I would say that the best restaurant scene in Ukraine is actually in Lviv. Uh, rather than Kiev, uh, so uh, for me, but I guess uh, in terms of restaurants in Kiev, my one of my favorite restaurants is Storokiv uh, Tamuf Peret, or One Hundred Years Ago Ahead, or so. I don't know how it is properly translated, but basically, it is a, a Ukrainian conceptual restaurant where one or, where the chef, they he and his team basically traveled Ukrainian villages and picked up these small local recipes. Uh, and then they implemented it into these wonderful and amazing restaurant dishes, which are delicious and very un unusual when you compare them to other more classic Ukrainian dishes, such as borscht or vareniki. You know, you might like those dishes are those dishes are definitely something new when you when you're searching for some exploration of Ukrainian food. I guess when it comes to uh, cuisine in Singapore, I guess the biggest discovery that uh, of my preferences here is that I actually like spice. Um, and for me, it was a big surprise because I, uh, for the first time, uh, for the first few months when I came to Singapore, I could not tolerate a single meal because, uh, you know, Ukrainian food is not too spicy most of the time, while Singaporean food with its uh, Chinese origins, with its Indian and Malay origins, it always has this little spice and always uses quite a bit of chili. So. Uh, for me, I was always asking the non-spicy version before, but this time I actually got accustomed to it and now I actually prefer the spicy one because it gets this kick to the dish and it makes me personally more excited about what I'm eating. I guess in terms of the favorite dish and discovery that I had in Singapore, I have a, I have a few. And I think the, the beauty of Singapore is, again, the blending of cultures. It is, I wouldn't say, it is a global hub, but more, but even more, it is a regional hub. Uh, and a regional melting pot of cuisines. You can have a wonderful, freshly uh, fried pad thai for breakfast, for example, and then you might finish your day with a dish called satay, which is uh, pieces of meat uh, in a wonderful peanut sauce uh, and uh, fried on the coals. It's absolutely delicious. Uh, and uh, there are many, the, the one, most wonderful thing is that when you approach Singaporean cuisine, uh, you really can trace the origins of you, the dishes that you eat throughout the day to different historical and geographical locations. So, for example, now in one day I can eat uh, biryani from South India, then I can eat nasi lemak from Malaysia, and then I can finish my day with some Hainanese chicken rice from from uh, which is originally China. So, for me, I guess it is again this explosion of flavor, explosion of different taste profiles and generally a very exciting food scene uh, i think uh, the most uh, the coolest part about singapore is uh its hawker centers 
basically uh, before they uh, the hawker center is basically a big hub of street food so simple, similar to Kiev food market but it's actually street it's an actual street food and not restaurants catering so uh, and it's amazing how uh, each uh, family owned uh, little hawker stall that is in that market has its own family owned dish a recipe which got passed down for generations and then you're eating it so I think when you're going to hawker stalls, you're literally traveling the Southeast Asia. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> it's it's it's, it's amazing. The the food again, I think, is the one of the best ways to explore cultures, but but especially cultures in Singapore. I like that. So just by going to that street food location, you explore the whole of Southeast Asia, and it's uh, traveling <laughs> with your mouth <laughs> without needing to travel. And since Without you focus on culture a lot, <laughs> yes. And to ask you really now, because we didn't speak about Ukraine as much as um, other places, to compare the culture of Ukraine to the Southeast Asia region, since, since, since Singapore is actually a melting pot, so it's all the cultures there. How did you find the people, the culture to be different? And if someone never visited Ukraine before, how would you describe Ukraine, your favorite thing about it, about the people and the culture and the personalities of Ukrainians? Mm, I think it's it's better to actually approach the similarities rather than differences because differences are not differences are not as surprising when you live in your life on two opposite parts of the world rather than similarities where you're like, oh my God, this is like just like in Ukraine. I guess if you don't mind, I can talk about similarities in this case. Uh, uh, I guess one of the biggest similarities is that Ukrainians are very hardworking, and this is this is exactly this is very similar to how Singa- how hardworking Singaporeans are. So uh, your podcast features so many hardworking Ukrainians that are so inspired by the things they do, and they really want to uh, either either make their future better or the world better. They have a cause, and Singaporeans are are quite similar in that way. Uh, I mean, of course, there's this cultural uh, element uh, uh, like kiasu, which is basically afraid of losing out uh, in translation, which is uh, a distinctively Singaporean and singularly Asian thing. Uh, and especially it's visible in education. But I guess the hardworking element is very, um, it is very uh, similar. And I guess another one is hospitality. So Ukrainians are famously hospitable. And for me, I was quite struck when I experienced very similar feeling of hospitality from Singaporeans here. So although Singaporeans, I mean, Singaporeans are generally like they're used to this cultural diversity, but especially you feel it when you go, for example, to your friend's house for Chinese New Year, um, when, you know, they greet you, his parents, his whole family greets you, gives you oranges, gives you the hunk paos, which is little envelopes of some money inside that is given for Lunar New Year here and and they they give you their family dishes and it's it's so nice and so hospitable and um so amazing and for me it really gave me like a feeling of home rather that I felt back in Ukraine and I guess these uh, these these two aspects are like the most shocking for me because our cultures on the first side might seem very different uh to a person uh who never have been to Ukraine I would definitely mention these two things uh, because yes, uh, Ukrainians are known to be very hard workers. Uh, in fact, they work they work one of the longest hours in 
um, in Europe, despite receiving one of the lowest pays, which is a problem for another episode, I guess. <laughs> uh, I mean, and and I guess uh, Ukrainians again are very famous for their hospitality. But I get, additionally, I would really, really want to make an emphasis on the Ukrainian culture and the cultural heritage we have, because I think this is for me personally, it's very precious to remember where I come from, and specifically. I uh, I share my heritage with people who have never been to Ukraine by default. So, you know, I love to wear Shivanka on the street here in Singapore. I love to, like, talk, talk about politics of my country, about culture, about traditions and rituals we have. And I think apart from it, it adds a whole new dimension to a purely economic discourse on uh, on who Ukrainians are. Yes, we are a great workforce, but we are also very spiritual and very culturally deep and uh, interesting uh, place to be in. And I think this is one of the greatest values of Ukraine. Thank you. So Singapore is Ukraine, but more spicy, correct? Uh, With its regional peculiarities. (laughs) Yeah, since you said you didn't know you like spicy food until you began trying it and getting used to it and preferring it in Singapore. So that's absolutely uh, a great way to show that you're getting new perspectives and therefore you're becoming more of a citizen of the world and therefore the issues you care about became more globalized and uh, larger scale and more of a humanistic perspective on (laughs) everything. And if people wish to connect with you, to communicate with you, to learn more, what would be the best ways and links for them to contact you? I think, uh, um, I mean, it really depends on why they want to link up with me. Uh, uh, for professional reasons, of course, I can always provide my LinkedIn. But if somebody just wants to learn more about Ukraine or life in Asia, and specifically Singapore, you can also find me by my Facebook or uh, Instagram as well. Thank you. I'll make sure to write them in the description. It was a pleasure, and I wish you a great day, Nikita. Thank you. I wish you a great day.